1: uh, for the month of July, entitled A Return to Peace. And if you've been following along with us, and, or if this is your if you're first Sunday with us, we've actually been reading through the Bible in a year. We do this every year. And uh, our themes for the year will correlate with the messages. So each year as we read through the Bible, we feel that God has called us to highlight a certain theme. Over the course of nine years, we believe God's called us to go through each of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, out of Galatians chapter 5. So a few years ago, we had love. Last year, COVID, we had joy. This year, 2021, has been peace. I find it ironic how each of those has been challenged along the way. But this year being the theme of peace, as we've read through the scripture, um, we've been looking at themes of peace throughout Genesis all the way up to now Nehemiah. You, if you've been faithful to follow along with this, or if you've gotten behind and you're trying to catch up, we should be in the realm or the area of where Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is one of those famous books of the Bible. It's this story of Nehemiah actually goes beyond the church because it's used in the leadership culture of many of the business structures of the world because Nehemiah was this famed leader of the Old Testament. He rallied all of the exiles that had been coming back Into Jerusalem after their 70 years of exile in this kingdom known as Babylon or the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. They had now, after 70 years of exile, begun begun to come back home because King Cyrus, as we talked about last week, allowed the exiles to go back, rebuild your places of worship, rebuild your homes and your cities. He did that more than likely as a political effort to gain their trust and their loyalty so here's two different styles of leadership right you've got Nebuchadnezzar and you've got Cyrus Nebuchadnezzar rules by brute force and destruction Cyrus wants to rule benevolently to gain the loyalty of those whom Nebuchadnezzar overtook But Cyrus is now the king, not of Babylon, but the Medo-Persian Empire, which has taken over the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus is even spoken about in the book of Isaiah by name 150 years before he even comes onto the scene. About the same time as Cyrus is letting the exiles go back to their homes to rebuild their cities of worship, the exiles of the Jewish nation are coming back to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the city. The first thing they build, if you read the book of Ezra, is the brazen altar or the altar of sacrifice, which would have set out in the temple court area. And this is where all of the sacrifices would have been made on behalf of the people as sin offerings or burnt offerings for the sins of the people. The brazen altar would have been built of bronze. And then they began to rebuild the temple. If you read the book of Ezra just before Nehemiah, and it's actually Ezra and Nehemiah technically are one book. We break them up in our Old Testament now, but it's Ezra slash Nehemiah because the two of them are contemporaries. Ezra is a scribe and a priest. Nehemiah is a cupbearer for the king, King Artaxerxes now at this point in the Medo-Persian empire. And uh, and the king of the Medo-Persian empire allows Nehemiah to go back. Well, Ezra is already there. He's already been working to change the environment to get the people stabilized spiritually and otherwise. There's also a guy there by the name of Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast. Zerubbabel, right? Great name for a baby today. I think it's going to come back into style. But Zerubbabel was basically the general contractor on the temple. This would have been known as the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it when he took over Jerusalem. And now they're rebuilding the temple 70 years later under a guy by the name of Zerubbabel under the spiritual headship and leadership of Ezra, the scribe, and priest and Nehemiah hears the exiles are coming back home. A lot of good things are happening. He's in the capital city of Susa, which is many hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And his heart breaks because, not because of the good things that are happening, but rather because the walls of the city, which are not only a symbol of security and strength, but are the security of the people are broken down. They've been broken down for 70 years since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. And so now Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, one of the most trusted uh, uh, servants to the king at the time, basically asked for permission to go back. I'm really doing this in a nutshell. You want to read the whole story of Nehemiah? It's a relatively short book. Read it in the Old Testament in one setting. You can get through it. But Nehemiah goes back. The, the, the king says, sure, I'll let you go. Do you know how long he was gone? <laughs> he was gone for about 12 years, 11 to 12 years. You are one of the most trusted servants of the king at the time. You are cupbearer to the king. They are not easy to come by because you really have to make sure whoever's tasting your wine to see if it's poisoned is truly trustworthy or not. So he lets this guy go for about 11 to 12 years. And he gives him building materials for the, for the progress of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. So now we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we find the walls around Jerusalem have been solidified, rebuilt, and Nehemiah as an amazing leader instead of getting a, a contracting crew to come in of paid laborers instead gets all the exiles who have begun to resettle around Jerusalem. Those closest to the walls would rebuild those sections of the walls. So now think about this. In those days, ancient cities had, had, um, had structures built or homes and, and storefronts built into the walls. If your house was up against one of those, wall, one of those uh, sides of the wall, would you want yours to be secure? Yes, you would. So Nehemiah, in all of his great leadership ability, says, okay, you group, you group of people here, you're in charge of rebuilding this section. And you group of people here, you're in charge of rebuilding this section. Because he knew that if they were rebuilding the sections where their homes were closest to, that They would want it to be super strong. So now this is rebuilt. They're getting ready to dedicate, or they're dedicating the wall. They go through all this process, and something significant happens. Ezra comes back onto the scene. Again, I said they're peers or contemporaries at the time. But before we get to that, I want to ask you this question. What do you hunger and thirst for? What is it that wakes you up in the morning and gets your blood pumping and pushes you out the door? What is it that you desire most in life? And what are you doing to see that through? And I guess the question would be, is what drives you to get up and go out the door of eternal significance and value? What is it you desire the most? I came across this story many years ago. There was a guy in Kansas City who was injured by an explosion. There's a guy by the name of, of Robert Sumner, who's an evangelist. He talks about this guy in his book. His book's called The Wonders of the Word of God. Would you listen to what he writes about this guy that experienced great uh, disfigurement and injury from this explosion? He said, he writes, The victim's face was badly disfigured, and he lost eyesight, complete eyesight in both eyes, as well as he lost both hands in the explosion. He was just a new Christian at the time, and one of the greatest disappointments for this, for this guy was that he could no longer read the Bible. He was on fire. He had received Christ. He he knew that Christ was alive and well. And he knew that Christ had saved him from sin and death. And so the best that he could do, at least at this point in time, as a new believer is to learn more about this Jesus whom he had surrendered his life to. And so he was constantly eating the Bible, figuratively speaking. He wasn't able to do that the way he used to be. Then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips, hoping to do the same thing. He he set off to learn Braille. The problem was, as he got a Bible in Braille and tried to put his lips across it, there was nerve damage to his face, so much so that he couldn't feel with his lips, One day, trying to continue to read the Bible in Braille with his lips, as he was bringing the pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters on the page. He realized what he couldn't feel with his lips, he could feel with his tongue, And like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. And at that time, Robert Sumner wrote his book. The man had read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue. True story. (sighs) Do you hunger and thirst for God the way this guy hungered and thirsted for the word of God? Do we take for granted the words of God from Genesis to Revelation so much so that we may have a hundred Bibles in our home collecting dust, but it's been a while since we picked it up to read it? Of course, you're expecting a pastor or a preacher to talk about the importance of reading the Bible because that's what I dedicate my life to, right? Well, it's hard for me at times to discipline myself to read the Word of God. Well, how do you prepare sermons? Well, it's not just about preparing sermons. It's about knowing the Word, not only the written Word, but the living Word. But I have to be honest with you. There are times where I don't have that hunger and thirst, where it's hard It's difficult, and I pray for God to give me the desire like this guy had to so desperately want to know the words of life from the word of God that if I had lost all sense of being able to read in the normal ways that I would be diligent enough to find a way to read it however I could. In the old days, and when I say old days, in the Jewish context, in Jesus' day and age, you may have heard me say this before. Historically, we read in the Mishnah and the Talmud that, that young men being raised in the tradition of Judaism would learn the whole Torah before they were 12 years old in the language of Hebrew. As you know, I have taught before Penn Christian Academy, 7th and 8th grade Bible. It would have been about the same age range that kids that I'm teaching would have had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. And so I tell them at the beginning of the school year, or at least I did, by the end of this school year, by the end of these nine months together, you will have memorized the first five books of the Bible and your final exam will be if you can do it in Hebrew. They don't like that. Yeah, I know it's, it's kind of corny, I get it. But still, if you were at the top echelon of your class in the synagogue, you would have gone on to a further learning of the Word. You would have learned the historical documents. You would have learned the, the poetry. You would have learned the prophets. You would have been able to memorize all of that. So now when Jesus, totally side note here to what I'm going to get to today, but when Jesus was confronting the religious leaders of his day and he was calling them out and they were trying to call him out, he knew the word just as much, if not better, because he was the word, than they did. And so when he's calling them out, he's calling them out on things that they knew by memory and that they had failed to understand the context of. You and I need to learn, not just but I don't do well with memory brand, and I don't remember. I don't either. That's why you'll hear me paraphrasing a lot, because I am I really struggle with memorization. That's why I'm constantly reading as much as I can, not only about the Bible but the Bible itself, so that I could study to show myself approved. You would hopefully want your pastor to stand on the stage. Being an expert in the scripture, but not lording it over others the way the Pharisees did. But hopefully opening, and opening it up in a way that, has, that helps reveal the very nature of God to you so that it transforms your life. So we come to this place now. The walls are rebuilt. The people are there. It says that they built a platform in the city square. Much like a stage today. Not much has changed, right? Built a platform, and the law of Moses is brought out. The law would have fit on one scroll. Scrolls were parchment or animal skins that would have been sewn together if it needed to be longer, and they would have been rolled up in a scroll. They still do this in Jewish synagogues today. They will bring different scrolls out for the rabbis to read on a large table in front of the synagogue, or in in the synagogue assembly. So, the the scroll of the Torah was brought, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I want you to hear what happens in this context. In October, Nehemiah chapter 8, starting with verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. In October, Of course, October is not the Jewish calendar. So our translators have taken liberty to give the equivalency in our Gregorian calendar of what time of year this was. The Jewish calendar is very different. But it would have been around October at the time during Nehemiah's uh, governorship there in in Jerusalem. So in October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns. Oh, this is uh, actually chapter 7 the last verse of that one, then going into chapter 8. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. There were so many gates around this city. There was the dung gate. Guess what that one was for. There was a dung gate. There's a water gate. There are all these different gates. They assembled. They want you to know where they assembled. So if you look at a map of the temple complex and the city of Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, you can actually locate this on a map. Okay, so they were there by the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. Now, I find this significant, don't you? This isn't the pastor saying, you guys need to hear this, so sit down. It says the people assembled, and they said, Ezra, would you read the law to us? Would do my heart well, as pastor. Would you read all first five books of the the, the 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 Torah for us today? We can. We barely make it through thirty to forty minutes. They are saying, "Bring the scroll." It was written in Hebrew, as traditionally would have been the case. The people in Nehemiah's day would have spoken Aramaic. Many of them did not understand Hebrew. So now they're asking Ezra, bring out the scroll of the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and would you read it to us? Well, why would we read it if we don't understand it? Follow along. Verse 2, so on October the 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all the children old enough to understand. So who all's there? Everybody. Anybody that can understand or comprehend what's being said is expected or desired to be there. Even the women. Think about that. This was a revolutionary concept in Nehemiah's day because women were not allowed the same educational uh, 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 privileges that men were. But in this context, it was imperative and super important that all people who have returned from exile hear the words of God again. And what is it that God expects and desires of us? He faced the square. Ezra, Ezra did, just inside of the watergate, from early morning until noon, reading aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. This was not music. This wasn't specials. This wasn't any, this wasn't drama. This wasn't. They didn't have any videos or skits to put on. They just sat and they listened to Ezra reading the scroll of the law from. Daybreak when the sun came up, maybe around six o'clock in the morning till noon, six hours, give or take. Chew on that for me. I'm not going to do that to you. But when we, I just want a point of point of uh, of, of truth here. When we get when we get upset that the things of God or the preaching of the word or the reading of the word goes way too long, the question is, where's the desire of your heart? So he stood on this wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood, and bear with me, there's a lot of names here, okay? Matthias, Shema, Ananiah, or Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah were there on the platform. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Heshbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen and Amen. As they lifted their hands, they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherubiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabod, Hanan, and Peliah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places." They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. So now you have Ezra on the platform reading in the original Hebrew, the five books of the, of the old Testament known as the Torah or the Pentateuch in front of all the people. You have these men, interspersed with the whole crowd and they are translating more than likely into Aramaic and when necessary explaining some of the more difficult places of the law. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as he listened to the words of the law. Why do you think they were weeping? You've been in exile for 70 years. More than likely, you did not have parchment at that time because everything had been destroyed up to that point. There were scribes who continued to hold sacred these scrolls, but because there wasn't this mass printing press or the Gutenberg press even at the time, these were very sparse and scarce to find. And so they had lived for 70 years based on what they had remembered from their traditions and not on what they could read from their traditions. For 70 years, word of mouth, the older generation at least passing on what vestige of the law they remembered to the next generation so that by the time they come back, it's time. All right, we know there's a scroll here. Let's read it together. We, we've now refortified the city, the temple's in place, the altar's there. Every piece that we need to worship God is here. Let's read the law. And so now they're hearing it as it had been written for centuries, every jot and tittle. They read every detail of it. And the pieces that have been handed on to them by tradition are now given full glorious perspective. And they realize how far they had fallen from the grace of God and His teachings. They were broken. God who had been faithful and they who had been unfaithful had allowed judgment to happen and he's now giving grace after a period of seven years as he promised to do this and let them come back home. He's proven himself to them time and time and time again and yet now they're hearing for the very first time this generation the actual words of the holy book, the law of Moses. And they're broken. When was the last time we read the word of God and were broken? And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too. They quieted the people, telling them, hush, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal. They shared gifts and food, or gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they had heard God's words and understood them. You know one of the biggest pushbacks I get as a pastor is I can't read that. I don't understand what I'm reading. What are you doing? Where where are you going? How How are you reading it? Yes, read it at all times and in all places but you should read it together with other believers. You should read it with other believers that have been there, done that, they have the experience, maybe have a little, little bit of uh, more knowledge of those things so that they can help you understand the way the Levites did in the context of the assembly that day. You need to be careful, right, for false teachers. They, they're out there, but how do you know what a false teacher is? It's somebody who says something contrary to the word of God. That's a different subject for a different time. Here's a key word this morning, God's Word leads to repentance, peace, and restoration. I don't want to assume whether or not you read the Scripture. I'm not going to make a large assumption that you don't. I would rather err on the side that you read the Bible faithfully whenever you can, and you are a student of that Word. Because in order to continue to foster a relationship with God, Yahweh, through Jesus Christ... We must not only be in the Word, but the Word should be in us. Not only the written Word, but the living Word, Christ, should be alive and well in us. And it should probe and push us into these deeper places of understanding. Not alone and in a vacuum, but together as the body of Christ. Not just on Sunday mornings, but it says in the early church, they met daily together in homes. No matter what spectrum you were on, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, they gathered together in homes as equals and they studied the apostles' teaching. They prayed together, they fellowshiped, they broke bread and including the Lord's Supper daily. Not just on Sunday mornings. It did say they met in the temple daily, at least while it was still there. So what do we get from this? I want you to look at this passage from four different perspectives. The first thing is they hungered for God's word. They hungered for God's word. You you see this often with a persecuted people where it's illegal to uh, own a Bible or even have a Bible in certain nations today. I, I came across a ton of different stories that I could have placed in, 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 the, in the message today. But those who live in persecuted places where it's illegal to own a Bible, they will find any way, form, or fashion to get their hands on any piece of Scripture, even if it's only a book of the Bible or even just a few pages of the Bible. They will risk their lives for that. Why would somebody risk their life for a book? you ever wondered it's really quiet in here today are you at home talking to me online why would somebody risk their life for a book why is it important it's got what in it it's got life in it how does a book give life See, these are the things that we don't really dig into and really chew on enough in the church. Tr- we get these flowery messages oftentimes. Read the Bible, read the Bible, read. Why? Is, if it's just some other book, why do we need to read that one versus any other book out there? Well, in, in not just our tradition, but in our faith in God, we believe that that book. Though it's written on things that this earth has produced, like paper and ink and those kind of things, leather bound, we believe the words that are inspired by God through the Holy Spirit are holy, are good. Are worthy of not only being read, but being read again and again and again and again. The psalmist in 119, the longest psalm in the whole book of Psalms, says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What word have you hidden in your heart? Your word? The culture's word? Your politicians' words? What words are you hiding in your heart? What is it that is the standard by which you live? Is your standard perfect? I've had conversations with many a non-Christian over this, or even blatant atheists who say, my standard is me. And the obvious question to then ask is, are you perfect? No. Nobody's perfect. Then your standard's imperfect correct? And if you have an imperfect standard because you are an imperfect person and the only standard you have is you, then that means you're going to continue to be imperfect for the rest of your life. Then the question is also begged, is there a perfect standard? Well, believers in Christ do believe there is a perfect standard. Because if there is no perfect standard, we are a hopeless lot of people. If you build your standard on anything less than a perfect standard, then every result of everything you do will lead to imperfection and ultimately to destruction. But if there is a perfect standard, doesn't it beg the question that we build our lives on that perfect standard? To not do so would be foolish and worse yet, evil. We can become the epitome or the embodiment of sin by giving ourselves over to an imperfect standard because it will ultimately lead to our destruction. So then the other question is, if the Bible is the standard, then why does it seem to contradict itself? It doesn't. If you understand it, this is why you have Levites intermingled throughout the people just for the first five books of the Bible, not just to translate it into the known tongue of the day, Aramaic, but to help them understand the words that they do understand in Aramaic. Well, what does it mean that we shouldn't do this or we should do that? Well, this is what that means in context. What does do not murder mean from the Ten Commandments? What does do not commit adultery mean? What what does don't covet mean? What does it mean you shall have no other gods beside me? Don't make a graven image of me to worship. Don't take my name in vain. What do all of those things mean? Sometimes we need interpretation and clear understanding in order to be able to apply those things in a daily way to our lives. If it is a perfect standard, then it should be the foundation of all we are and everything we do. The problem is, even today, I find as a pastor, more often than not, people want to find loopholes. You've heard me say this before. Does it really mean this? Am I really, if I lust after a woman in my heart, have I really committed adultery with her? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, are you sure this is true? Here's the thing. In reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you either believe it's true or you don't. It's not a, it, it is an all or nothing. Now, Here's the caveat to that, because you're like, so everything's literal. That's not what I said. Everything is true, but not everything is meant to be read literally. Why is that? Because there's poetry in there. There's figurative language. Jesus spoke in parables, which are fictional stories to elevate a higher truth. There's so many different kinds. This is why it takes the body of Christ to not get used to the idea of not meeting together. It takes us coming together, reasoning with one another. As iron sharpens iron, we challenge one another with the Word of God so that we can grow in context and love for one another and for God. The question is, where is the hunger? There are so many people wandering today, even within the context of the body of Christ, the church, for truth, because they're not even sure they believe in the Word of God as truth again I ask the question then where do you root reasoning and understanding for all truth there is no and I will contend it till my dying breath there is no other word there is no other thing that brings more truth to life and it was that word that became flesh and dwelled among us John said God would not have given us his son as the embodiment of the word if the word wasn't the standard for truth. And it says in John 14, 6, you hear me quote this all the time, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he is the embodiment of the word and the word is truth, then you can stake your life on it. Where's your hunger? Is your hunger for the things of God? Because if it is, it should be in the word of God. Just as the people of God in that day, in Nehemiah's context, said, bring the word out. We want to hear it in our own ears. We want to see everything in it. And we want to understand it. Because obviously doing it our way has gotten us into a load of trouble in the past. We now are being given grace by coming out of exile for 70 years into this place of opportunity. So let's start over on the right premise again with the right foundation. The second thing is the people were attentive to God's word. How long did they stay in there till noon? Six. Out they said they rose and stood at the reading of the word. How many of you get tired for standing for 10 to 15 minutes singing a few songs? Imagine rising at the reading of the word. It doesn't tell us that then they sat back down when they got tired. Now, I'm not trying to convict you. I know some of you have illnesses and issues with your back, your hips, your feet, that you can't stand. So please don't hear me saying you're a sinner for not standing. But I want you to understand the context in Nehemiah. It says they weren't told to raise, but at the reading of the word, in unison, they all stood. It's an act of reverence. It's an act of respect. Because they believed that the words written in the law of Moses were the very words of God to the people of God. And they wanted to revere it the way it had been, the the way, in opposition to the way it had been revered in the past, which was it had been unrevered, which is why they got in this mess in the first place. They stood in attention. While studying the Bible. Or excuse me, while studying in the Holy Lands, a guy by the name of Jack, and I looked up the pronunciation of his name, and I said it a few times this week, and now it eludes me. It's K-U-H-A-T-S-C-H-E-K. Okay, Kashukachak. It sounds like a sneeze. But I'm sure he's a great guy. He's a scholarly writer. But he writes a book called Taking the Guesswork Out of Applying the Bible. And in this book, He has a story, a real story, while he was studying in the Holy Lands, in Israel and and thereabouts, He says, a seminary professor of mine met a man who claimed to have memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. This is Genesis through Malachi, not Genesis through Deuteronomy. He claimed to have memorized the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. Needless to say, the astonished professor asked for a demonstration. If somebody tells you that, you say, prove it, (laughs) right? So uh, a few days uh, later, they sat together in this man's home. Where shall we begin? The man asked. Psalm 1, replied my professor, who was an avid student of the Psalms and very literate in Hebrew. Beginning with Psalm 1, verse 1, the man began to recite from memory while my professor followed along in his Hebrew Bible. For two hours, the man continued word for word without a mistake as the professor sat in stunned silence. And when the demonstration was over, my professor, he goes on to write, discovered something even more astonishing about the man. He was an atheist. Here was someone who knew the scripture better than most Christians ever will, and yet he didn't even believe in God. How do you come to the Word of God? Do you come to it with a faith and a belief that what you're reading is real and true? Or do you come to it just as another book and you are reading it just because you think it's the right thing to do because you go to church? See, there are many people in the church today that just go to church services. They're involved in Bible studies and and they and, and they they claim to love God they bring their Bible to those events they have many more Bibles at home on the shelves or their nightstand however the desire to read the Bible just isn't there much less memorize it it's not that they don't believe that what the Bible says is true or that it's not important they just lack the attentiveness or the desire to read and understand the word of God as a means to understanding God himself You've heard this analogy before. How many of you, when you dated the person you're married to, if you're married or if you're dating the person now that you're going to be married to. Now it's text messaging. I doubt it's even emails, maybe Snapchats or something. But my day and age before that, and yes, I'm a little bit older, my wife and I would write letters to each other before we were married. And I remember her writing me. I was on summer tour traveling with a singing group and she would write letters ahead of me to the places where we were gonna go through the Eastern United States. And so there would be letters awaiting me there. do you think I had an anticipation when I got there to read her words? Do you think I just read one line and put it down because it was too much? A couple lines, a couple sentences. Whoo! I'm spent. <laughs> you know? Or did, 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 did you find it? Did you think I just picked up in the middle? Just randomly at one random sentence in the middle and started reading. No, because I would miss context. You know what I wanted to do? What, what was the hunger and the desire of my heart? I wanted to know every word she wrote. Beginning to end. And guess what? I wouldn't just read it once. What would I do? Over and over and over again. Sometimes I would smell smell the page. You ever do that? It's kind of weird, but I did. And it smell the page because I wanted to get a whiff of her scent. Are we never mind <laughs> my mind was going somewhere I'm learning as I get older to keep this thing shut a little bit more so comic relief isn't always the end all be all All right, but I would, I would read these things over and over and, 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 and I would anticipate the next one when's the next one coming and when it wouldn't come to the next one I'd be bummed out you know Or then it would be uh, later on down the road, there would be another one waiting at this church because she'd mailed it to this church where we were going to be singing at. And there it was. Do we come to the Word of God that way? The greatest love story of all time. Yes, it's got ups and downs in it. It's got trials and tragedies in it. But the overarching theme from Genesis to Revelation is this redemptive story through the love of God, reaching out constantly, consistently, throughout the course of human history, into the human situation that is sinful and broken, saying, I want to help you, let me redeem you. I want to help you, let me redeem you. And he's doing what he can on his side of the issue, but he cannot force us into the relationship. But he says, here it is, come to me. Come to me, come on, come on. I've got this for you. This is the best way. And we thumb our nose at it. I just can't understand it. I don't care if I couldn't understand what she was writing me, I would read it anyway. Of course, I could understand it. But we don't always understand the things we read, which is why we have to read them together as the body of Christ. And when we do that, we have to be attentive. We don't need to just gloss over the words because we're doing a discipline. Yes, there is a discipline of study, but it's more than a discipline. It is the word of life. Thirdly, the people were responsive to God's word. Amen and amen, they said. Anytime you read amen with regard to the people, oftentimes it's in agreement with something that's being said. It's in essence saying, let it be so. Okay? Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20, where God speaks from Mount Sinai to the people, giving verbally from the mouth of God the words of God, the Ten Commandments to the people. God is wanting to covenant with these people in the line of Abraham. He gives them the law, which we now call the law of Moses. Specifically, he gives the Ten Commandments, and then they were expounded on by Moses in about 600 other laws in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the people, when God tells Moses to come down off the mountain to get the people prepared. Make sure they're consecrated because I'm going to speak directly to them. Set off a border around the mountain that they cannot come upon or they will die. Okay? Get them prepared. So Moses comes down off the mountain, and says God's getting ready to speak. He wants to speak directly, but you have to consecrate yourselves. Exodus 19. And what is consecrate? Make yourselves holy. Purify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Refrain from sexual activity. Even with your spouse, you need to focus on the things of God right now. Get yourself ready to hear the voice of God. And so they do so. And you know what they said? Amen. Amen. We will do all that he requires of us. Do you know what just happened when they said that? They said, In this contractual covenantal agreement, we will do everything God expects. God is offering us this as the other party in the covenant relationship. And so now you have two parties who are saying yes to the agreement and then God gives the commands and the stipulations of the agreement. They were responsive to God's word in Nehemiah's day. They heard the law again. And what is their response? Amen and amen. And they are broken over it. Their response leads them, as we'll find out in a moment, to repentance. All too often we come to the Word of God rather than saying amen and amen, we say, Oh me, oh me, or we say, I don't get it. When in all actuality we need to be amenning and amenning, and where we can't, amen, we need to get our lives straight. So that we can say with full affirmation, Amen and Amen. their responsiveness, and brokenness, and in their agreement to the red law of Moses, the contractual agreement God had made with them, they said, yes, we will do it. Now, of course, that's a different sermon for a different time. Sorry, I digress. I'm going to say they blew it again a few generations later, okay? So, But they had a repentant heart. Why were they weeping? Because at the hearing of God's word and how far they had fallen from it, the standards of it, they were broken. What is repentance? Repentance is going in the direction, going in one direction, realizing you're going the wrong way, stopping, doing a face about 180 and going the right way. It's really what repentance is. And so the people said, we, we will do what God requires of us. We're broken that we haven't been. We're broken that we've been going the wrong way for so long. We want to do what he requires, what he expects, what he desires, because we know it is good. It isn't meant to harm us or hurt us. And so they repented. The sad reality is that there are many people today who can hear or read the Word of God and not even be fazed by it. It's as if they're merely words on a page rather than life-giving truth. When God's Word is heard and received as truth from God Himself, it not only leads to repentance, but empowers people with a solid foundation, with hope, with assurance, and with the knowledge that is transformative and life-changing. As our worship team comes forward today to close us out, I'm going to close with this story. Famed Christian evangelist. How many of you are familiar with George Mueller? You heard of him before, maybe? He's been around. Well, he's, he's dead now. I'm sorry. He's not been around forever. His writings have been around forever. Amazing, amazing man. Spiritual power and authority for God. He wrote these words. Listen to what he says. It is, common, it is a common temptation of Satan to make us give up the reading of the word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone. As if it were of no use to read the scriptures when we do not enjoy them. And as if it were no use to pray when we have no spirit of prayer. The truth is that in order to enjoy the word, we ought to continue to read it. And the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. The less we read the word of God, the less we desire to read it. The less we go to a place of worship, the less we desire to go there. The less we pray, the less we desire to pray. It's been said that people do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but rather because it contradicts them. We need to have a hunger and thirst for God's Word again because that hunger and thirst for God's Word will lead us straight into the presence of God. Yes, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the living Word... The word that became flesh is our only hope for salvation. You cannot see a contradiction in the written word and the living word. They are together, one. But Jesus, the living word, he died on a cross, fulfilling the curses of the covenant that was broken by all the people before him. But as the perfect sacrifice, incurring the judgment of God that was reserved for us, the perfection of who he was gives us now the blessings of the old covenant law. There were blessings and curses. Jesus took the curses upon himself that was reserved for us. He died a death that we should die. And he gives us new life through the new covenant and his blood that was poured out on the cross. See, this is one of the things I love about God. Is he takes this guy, Abraham, from amongst a tribal group of people in Ur of the Chaldeans in the middle of Nowheresville. Who is incapable of bearing children. Or not, he can't, but his wife, you know what I mean. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham's probably, I I have no clue what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to do it. But I submit. So he ups and leaves his hometown with his wife, his belongings, and he goes off in a general direction because of his trust in God. You know what it was with Abraham? What was, counted, he was, what was counted to him as faith was his righteousness and his trust in God. He would become a blessing through the nations, not just through his descendants, but through one specific descendant, Jesus, who did exactly what God desired in the most perfect way. This is one of the things I love about God is he takes our, he does what we can't do for ourselves. He's always reaching out, listen, okay, you can't do that, then I want you to do this. Okay, you can't do that, I want you to, he, he does everything and bends over backwards, not only to get our attention, but to offer us salvation. When I hear people say that it's too hard, I say, what more do you want him to do? He stepped out of heaven and into time, gave up some of his royal privileges, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and he took the form of a servant and he submitted himself even to the point of death on a cross. What more do you want him to do? See, God pulls out all of the stops, every one of them, but he still can't force you to love him. So he's come a million steps and wants one from you. I fear that we are living in the days of the prophets of old, where the nation is so drifted from God and his purposes and ideals, a nation founded on the fundamentals of the 10 commandments and the teachings of Christ, who said at its very beginning, yes to God, in its law, structure, and systems. And the church, who should be the light of the world and the light of this particular nation, has shrunk into the background, believing that it is of no use anymore. We don't come to the word with hunger and passion and thirst. We are those people who like kids, are hiding it under a bushel. (laughs) This light that Jesus called us to be and to live. Church, we have the greatest freedoms that the world has ever known. And yet we lack the desire and the hunger. And so we try to fill the void with other things that we think are going to complete us and make us feel whole and and good, and they don't. They always come up short. Jesus, the living word, is what changes everything. Heavenly Father, it's not easy, but you showed us how uneasy it was in what you did through the life you lived here on earth. You didn't promise it was going to be a cakewalk. You didn't promise us that our steps were going to be unencumbered. You didn't promise us wealth beyond imagination, this side of heaven, but you promised us salvation through your son, Jesus, if we would believe. Yes, it's difficult, it's frustrating. There are things we don't understand, but God, you've given us enough of who you are to be, un- to be able to understand who you are and that you are trustworthy. Give us a heartbeat for you. Give us hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, give us the desires, God, that you desire for us. Strip away the apathy and the indifference that have led to this plague that paralyzes us to be light and salt in the world around us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within us, O Heavenly Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.